do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hey weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and my guest today is here to tell us that he's not sick, but he has lost some flesh. Welcome, Daryl Buxton. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be here and uh, really looking forward to a chat and a cuppa. Now then, so... Um, have you been busy? You seem like you're always kind of busy floating around stuff and doing stuff. Uh... Yeah, I've got loads on at the moment. Um, I, uh, I'm i editing We Belong Dead magazine, which I've been doing for just over a year now. Uh, took over from uh, Eric McNaughton, who I know you've had on the show. And um, and uh, Eric's still very much around as part of We Belong Dead. He's He now describes himself as the publisher and he sort of oversees everything and sort of uh, does a lot of the picture research still for the magazine and has uh, puts in a lot of opinions and ideas and things. But I've sort of taken over his job as editor because he, he, he just run out of time to... Uh, um, to sort of commit to that part of the magazine. And I'm having a great time doing that. We've just put out uh, issue 38, which is our black exploitation horror special. So, uh, which covers films. People think of black exploitation as being a 70s thing, but we, we've looked at black cinema um, uh, in terms of horror movies. We've got some going right back as far as the 1910s and then right up to date. With, with sort of current releases. So we've, we've covered over a century of uh, cinema in there. And it's been a nice little way of doing like a little alternative history of horror, really, you know, um, the films that sort of fall between the cracks. And uh, um, that's one thing I like to do with We Belong Dead. We did a French special um, earlier in the year as well. And again, that was very similar. It was taking um, a, a, a batch of films that are connected by, by nationality but showing the, the sort of diversity and the differences and the, the age range there as well. Obviously, the horror film was born in France. So, uh, um, so we're looking right at the birth of cinema and then coming right up to date with people like uh, Julia Ducourneau. And um, again, in covering French cinema, we managed to do this sort of whole alternative history of horror, you know. So, um, so these specials are going to be something that we carry on doing with with the magazine. I'm really enjoying doing that, and um, got loads of other irons in the fire as well. So, uh, you know, maybe we can uh, talk about some of those later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric is. Uh, I, I, I think you probably keep trying to lock him in the cellar, but he keeps escaping, doesn't he? He's, he's, I think he's, so. Yeah, yeah. He's a beast that cannot be killed. He's he's there. Um, yeah, he's a good lad. Eric is. Uh, I like Eric a lot. Yeah, and we belong dead as well. It's just uh, for those that don't know. I mean, we talked about it on Eric's episode, uh, episode five, and um, yeah, it's um, it's just a great celebration of horror and i think initially it was a kind of celebration of more um classic horror but i think it, you know certainly it has moved on to other areas i mean you've got the the euro horror coming up and you know you, you, different sort of streams of ideas you know and certainly the stuff i've written for we belong dead it hasn't necessarily just been that classic stuff i've done you know silent films to sort of things like like the the span the fairly recent spanish film the bar which was a uh, came out kind of just a year or so before the sort of lockdown but it it soon became very very sort of prescient very very quickly so yeah yeah it's still it's still a very you know because of what that film is it's still a very current movie you know and uh, and and yeah we're doing we're doing things like the books and so on, which are which are great. They're a really good sideline, and uh, I'm proud to say as well that to, although Eric's a bit of a global traveller now, and uh, you know he, he he does his sort of tours and things, 
um, uh, with with groups of uh, groups of uh, travellers and so on, and and he's, he seems to be jetting all over the world all the time. Um, me and you, I know, are both based in the East Midlands, and uh, I'm proud to say that We Belong Dead was born in the East Midlands because Eric was was living local at the time it all started in 1992, 93. So he was. Uh, he was. I mean, didn't know at the time. But he was living. Uh, I, I think he he moved out ju around about the time I was moving there. So I I, I grew up in uh, sort of Mansfield and Sutton, and yeah. um, but then I moved to Nottingham when I was like twenty. Um, no, sorry, I, I, I a bit older than that. I was twenty seven, I think, when I moved to Nottingham. But um, yeah, but I I lived in Forest Fields for quite a number of years, and I know Eric lived in forest fields too and he was kind of just across the way really so yeah so we, we kind of missed each other by his breadth i think you know so uh yeah um yeah and also you because i do a lot of stuff at broadway in nottingham so i guess in some ways you're my uh or, or i'm your um uh sort of contemporary in 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 uh, the uh, derby derby quad so you you kind of do similar stuff, I guess, like intros and things like that and, and, and all that kind of stuff at, at the cinema. So Yeah, me and you sort of dovetail quite nicely in that respect because, uh, you know, I've, I've got contacts at the Broadway and as you've said, you uh, you do bits and pieces at Quad as well. So so we do sort of cross paths occasionally, but uh, we, we, we manage not to tread on each other's toes. You know, I, I'm doing a lot of the stuff at quad that you do at uh, at nottingham so uh, yeah it's great you know i introduce a thing called fright club every month where we show a, a late night horror movie on a friday or saturday that's done once a month and we've been running that since about 2010 on and off and um uh we've, we've just just shown sugar hill actually the 19th 74 movie which tied in with the black exploitation um issue of we belong dead and then we've got uh, we've got the exorcist coming up and a lot of good stuff planned for next year but i've i've done a bit of teaching at quad as well and uh, i do lectures there and uh, presentations so yeah very similar to the sort of stuff that you're doing uh, over uh, just just over the way at broadway uh so daryl um obviously we belong dead and all that kind of stuff um big horror fan what was your entry point into horror then okay that's an easy one to answer like a lot of people i'm sure it was doctor who but uh, unlike a lot of people i go way back with doctor who because i was born in 1962 so i'm 61 years old now and my very earliest tv memory well i'm sure i was watching stuff on tv before this but it's all things I can't remember. I know I was a big Batman fan because uh, in the Adam West era, because I remember playing with Batman toys in, in, in the backyard at home when I was about four or five. But my very earliest TV memory that I can remember watching was um, The Web of Fear, which which then, of course, uh, episodes uh, went missing for years until they were, they were sort of rediscovered recently. But uh, so... Uh, I think there's still one episode missing, isn't there, of Web of Fear, the the Yeti story, and um, and so I I I will have actually seen that when I was five years old, and um, uh, I remember being terrified by that series. Uh, obviously, I, I would have been watching Doctor Who as well, but that's the one that I can remember quite vividly, and I remember my memories of being really really scared by it. And the thing that scared me about it was. It wasn't sort of on-screen action. It wasn't the appearance of the Yeti. It wasn't anything to do with sort of confrontation or, or anything. It was scenes of anticipation. It was it was the Doctor and the troops and people around him waiting in the underground for something to happen. And that really, really got to me at five years old. And I thought, OK, I know something scary is coming. I don't know what it is, but the way everyone's reacting is is get it's coming through the screen and it's getting to me. You know that fear is getting to me, and uh, I'm I'm as big a fan as you'll find of um, gore and what what my missus calls blood and guts. You know, and uh, and I, I love the extremes of horror, but that first memory is of 
that sort of anticipation and that sort of quiet horror, which I can appreciate just as much as I can people having their, their heads and, and arms locked off, you know. But uh, yeah, so Doctor Who, Web of Fear was my very earliest memory. The first horror films I remember watching, again, were TV experiences, as, as they, they are for a lot of our generation. And um, the very first one would have been on a matinee slot on ATV, sometime in the early 70s. Um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is a great way to start your, your horror film viewing. But uh, not long after that, and I've heard other fans of a similar age say this as well, there was a late night screening and it must have gone around the country because um, I, I know people from all over the country that saw it. It was Michael Armstrong's uh, Haunted House of Horror was shown on late night TV. And it seems it was a, one of the first films that a lot of us stayed up for. And I've spoken to a lot of people about this. And of course, that's that's a particularly violent film in parts. Um, even now, it's got sort of shocking scenes in, even though it's sort of, you know, uh, getting on for 55 years old. But uh, um, so, yeah, Haunted House of Horror. And again, watched on a tiny little portable black and white TV in a holiday chalet, as I remember. Um, so you're not seeing it as you would now on, on a, a big sort of widescreen Blu-ray or whatever. Um, yeah, tiny little image on a little TV while I was on holiday. So yeah, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Doctor Who, The Web of Fear, and then the, the, the real meet with, uh, with Haunted House of Horror. Yeah, just it's coincidence, because uh, obviously that they, they've uh, just stuck well, all the kind of surviving episodes of Doctor Who, of classic era Doctor Who on BBC iPlayer. So I was kind of working my way through a lot of those. So I'm just working my way through Patrick Troughton at the minute. Because well, I've seen some of the Patrick Troughton stuff before, but it wasn't, you know, I came in, I was born in 70, so I came in at the tail end of John Pertwee, really. I remember John yeah, Pertwee, yeah. and I remember the maggots, and, you know, that's one of my earliest yeah. memories, the green, the green death. death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and so, obviously, Tom Baker was more my doctor. But, um, yeah, but it's interesting working my way through those uh, Patrick Troughton ones. Um, yeah, and Web of Fear, I, I recently did watch the Web of Fear, yeah. Um, which is yeah, is is it's a great one that is because um, it's just mad. It's mental. People forget, you know. It's like kind of people are always shonky sets and you know bad costumes, but it's just fucking mental. It's like yeah, yeah. where does this come from? Where does this idea come? So we've got yetis, but there aren't they're not really yetis, and then they're being controlled by this, and then they've got this strange kind of web thing, and it's like what the fuck is going on? It's, yeah, it's great. Yeah. But I love the way. Yeah. I mean, I love it. Um, but I, I, I get why people might be frustrated by it because they, you know, taking, um, you know, I'm watching the, the one story I'm watching at the minute is The Invasion, which is the Patrick Trout and uh, Cyberman. And it's kind of, it, it's like it's fucking nuts because it's like, you know, episode five before they've introduced the Cyberman. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How would, you know, now you've got Doctor Who episodes of 45 minutes, you know, it's done. Yeah, you pack a whole minutes. story into it. Which is kind of, an hour, you know, yeah, I yeah. appreciate that as well, but sometimes I think sometimes you need more of a slow burn. And I think that was, you know, I'm not going to, you know, if Doctor Who is, you know, recent, more recent Doctor Who is special to people, great. That's Fantastic! I hope they get a lot of enjoyment out of it. it I, I like some of it. It's not always to my cup of tea, but I do think, yeah, yeah, that classic Doctor Who. There was something about that slow burn. There was something about that creepiness. You know, particularly in a lot of those, you know, Tom Baker episodes from later on. It was, you know, it was it was perfect for that time. It was because it did fit into science fiction, Nigel Neal stuff. Uh, folk horror it was all of that combined it was there's something very odd about it you know i mean i'm reading at the minute i managed very lucky i picked up picked up a copy of uh scarred for life the set of the the 70s volume one a book which i've been after for years but it's 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 like rocking all shit it costs a lot of money and i managed to pick it up for two pound fifty in a charity shop so working my way through that but yeah the doctor who section in that is good because what they do, they don't really talk about Doctor Who as such, but they talk about the, everything that happens around Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 good at that, those guys, and I think I think they do manage to get that whole era into you know packed in into those in between those covers and um, 
the whole book's a nice read and it all works as a piece even though they're doing sections on individual shows you can tell they're all coming from the same place and isn't 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 it great that we grew up in that era when all of this stuff that that you know people might think of as a bit weird and a bit strange it it was it was just not it was just what was on telly for us you know it was it was just all right we had we had three channels you switched on and you were more than likely to see something whether it would be a show like doctor who on bbc or children of the stones on itv or a public information film even you know they pop up in between shows on bbc one or bbc two you know and um and it was just it was just what happened to be on television, you know, in in the way that if you turn on the TV now, it might be Big Brother or something, you know, it was just what was on. So there was this weirdness sort of in the air and in the airwaves, you know, and um, and uh, yeah, it was. We 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 just soaked it up and thought, oh, this is normal, you know, and, and it was only years later when TV began to change. But I think we started realising, no, we, we really did grow up in a very, very special time. Special and terrifying. <laughs> Which well, made us the people we are today. Yeah, exactly. I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. But, it, you know, you look back and especially if you, you know, you, you go back and you thumb through, you know, Scarred for Life, it is very much, they were out to get us. <laughs> Oh, yeah, <laughs> they were yeah. to psychologically damage yeah. us. We're either going to be fixated on horror or, or nervous wrecks yeah. or po possibly both. Um, but then again, Andrew, I mean, you know, talking about COVID and things like that as we were earlier, you know, something like that comes along in the world and we're the best equipped people to deal with it. <laughs> yes, we are. We've, yes. we've learned from Tom Baker and we've learned from all our TV heroes how to deal with global catastrophe. And uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also, you know, uh, you know, people take the piss out of me. I, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to a few younger people and, you, you know, you, you just mentioned the fact that you still buy Blu rays or whatever. And they're like, what? That's not a thing. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. It's like, yeah. I'm just waiting until your favourite streaming site crashes and then I can get here with my fucking thousands of Blu-rays and I'm not going to invite you round. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think people are starting to see that now. It's, it's you know, you, you're seeing articles online every week about this and people are starting to get the message. So yeah, I was talking about this last night, actually. Um you know, I, I'm not against. I think potentially streaming is a great thing. Uh, you yeah, know, and I yeah. think what the, the the ones that tend to be really good are the ones that are more curated. You know, if you think about your shudders and your arrow online, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's that's really well. They're, they're they're more like an equivalent of your boutique Blu-ray labels, yeah. aren't they? You know, and and again, it's the boutique labels that rather taken over the Blu-ray market from from the majors. You know, and 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 the best streaming services, as you say are the ones that take that same approach. But I think a lot of the streaming services, the, the problem is, A, I think that the business model is beginning to be questioned. Yeah. Because yeah. if you can, like, I, I unsubscribed from Netflix a few months back because it was too much money. I wasn't accessing it. Mm. And I know exactly that when the next series of, I really like Cobra Kai, you know, it's, it's a great yeah. fun as soon as that that next series is announced i'll get a free subscription i'll i'll tan the whole series and then i'll end a sub free subscription and sure. I, I just think that's what people are doing it's like yeah yeah, yeah. and also there's this thing of like well okay with netflix particularly um if they pay for a production so say they get a director to come and make a film and they put it straight onto netflix and it doesn't get a physical release or a cinematic release if they if that they don't see that as being having done very well they can yeah. just take it off so I know, I as know. a producer or a director you've made nothing because it's disappeared no and i i can't i can't believe that one one of my very 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 favorite films of the last 10 years or so uh, ballad of buster scruggs funded by streaming played on streaming service and has has virtually disappeared you know it, it's there's no physical release and i've i've been collecting the coen brothers films over the years i love their stuff i've taught on them about them at quad and um 
love their films and then suddenly there's this gap in my collection where where's the blu-ray you know it's a fantastic film that is yeah absolutely yeah. brilliant and a great anthology film a great calendar oh, yeah, yeah. film and 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 you know it, it it it's got elements of horror in it as well and um well i mean, it, it, tapping into what we're, we're looking at today with todd browning but yeah i mean as you say we're, we're talking about todd browning today so uh, um i'm ready to crack on whenever you are on uh, and, and and shift into uh, well shall we say unknown territory <laughs> yeah so uh we are going to be looking at uh the 1927 silent film the Unknown, as directed by Todd Browning. When was the first time you came across this film? Early 90s was the first time I had the chance to see it. Um, I'd read about it in a few horror books before then, but it was weird that it, it, it only got fleeting passing mentions in all the... I mean, the, the great horror film books that we remember from the 70s, Dennis Gifford, Alan Frank and so on, never mentioned this film. And if you look back at those books, there's a lot of gaps and a lot of films that they didn't mention and didn't cover. And I'm quite interested in those gaps and I'm interested in why were there certain films that didn't get coverage. And um, The Unknown is one of them that sort of falls through the cracks, even when it does get mentioned, as it does by people like Carlos Clarence and Ivan Butler. It tends to be only one or two lines in, in passing in a sort of longer piece about other Cheney and Browning films. And so, yeah, early 90s, I was, uh, as a lot of us were then, I was trading tapes with people through the classified ads in, in Samhain and so on. And I, I got friendly with this guy from Italy called Maurizio, and I did actually go and visit him in the early 90s as well, spent a lovely week with, uh, with him and his wife in uh, Biella, just, just under the, uh, underneath the Alps in, in northern Italy. Had a great time there. And Maurizio, uh, we, we'd trade magazines, records, tapes, all kinds of things. One day this package arrived in the post from him. I opened it up. And at that point, I'd seen Cheney in things like Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback of Notre Dame and so on. I'd seen a couple of Browning films. I'd, I'd seen the film that he did with Cheney, The Unholy Three by that point. And um, so, and I'd read about all their stuff in, in, in books and devoured information about them. But this package turns up from my pal in Italy and there are two VHS tapes in it. And there's the four films on the two tapes. They're, and they're all Browning Cheney movies. There's The Road to Mandalay. There's The Blackbird. Um, there is West of Zanzibar. And there's The Unknown. And I'm thinking, I'm, I've got gold dust here. This is fantastic. And uh, Maurizio let me know. He sent a letter with them. And he said, oh, these these have all just played on French TV. And the, the French contact has, has taped them for me. And I knew you'd want to see them as well. So uh, I've sent them to you. And I I played all those in a single afternoon because, of course, they're, they're all fairly short. I mean, the version of The Unknown that was around back then was only 48, 49 minutes. Road to Mandalay was technically a lost film, and, and the only footage that existed is about 30, 32 minutes, I think. Uh, whether any of that has been rediscovered since, I've not looked into, but at the time, uh, The Unknown was about 48 minutes, Road to Mandalay was about 31, 32, and then uh, the Blackbird and West of Zanzibar, I think, were available in longer versions. But even then, even their full versions only ran to about an hour. So I sat down and just watched them one after the other. I got through the whole lot in about three or four hours. And it was just a marvellous, marvellous day, picking up on all these rare Cheney Browning films. And the unknown out of all four was the absolute standout and i'll go into the reasons why as we talk yeah it, it, i i i don't think i i don't think i actually i mean i came across it as such obviously in, in those kind of books we we're talking about and there's a famous image of 
Cheney, um, Sipanis, you know, appropriately enough, Sipanis cup of tea with his feet, um, yes, which yeah. is which is great, you know. And so I was aware of it, and I was kind of aware of the story and how bonkers it was and and perverse, and you know, we'll get into that. But yeah, I don't think I actually saw it properly till about five or six years ago, and yeah. I've watched it again recently because I was covering it at the Broadway. Um, but unfortunately, I've only I've only seen the fifty minute version. Because I, you know, like everybody else, I I, I ordered the uh, the new Criterion Blu-ray with Freaks, The Unknown, and The Mystic. Um, but you know, I've kept it and I've cracked it open this morning with the intention of rewatching um, The Unknown, uh, the the full version. Fucking discs won't work, so I've had to fucking send them back. I've heard that from one or two other people. I've played mine, and mine play fine, but uh, I have heard from other people that there have been problems with some of the discs. So, uh, But, yeah, they, they play fine on my player. So I have seen the longer version of The Unknown. The interesting thing about it is that I, I, I was wondering if there'd be, like, chunks of extra, extra scenes, you know, whole sort of uh, sequences that, that would add to story or i feared might take away from it you know might, yeah, might. Yeah. but playing it it really plays very much like the shorter version that we're all familiar with um because the extra 10 minutes or so that's been found um is dotted about throughout the movie it's sort of little trims and things and little atmospheric scenes and the, the the major one is is a sort of circus scene right at the very start of the film where you're getting shots of the crowd and you're seeing their reactions to uh, events that are happening in the ring and it just builds up the atmosphere really nicely and uh, but um, but yeah, what what you haven't got, which I I did sort of expect and did slightly fear, is that there's nothing like oh, there's like a ten minute chunk of, of a whole reel here that that you've never seen before. It's all just bits and pieces. So I think when you do finally get a disc that works and you do sit down to watch the film, I think you'll find it's very much the film you already know, but really nicely enhanced and with a real nice atmosphere to it yeah it's all these little trims and bits and pieces just odd little shots here and there and it all mounts up to about an extra 10 or 12 minutes but it doesn't take away what we love about the unknown yeah i, I was a bit um i've got i've got quite a few discs criterion discs and obviously as soon as any if it could have been anybody that sort of said they were going to re-release Freaks, particularly as they were releasing it with The Unknown and The Mystic. It's just a fantastic package. Yeah. And having scanned, even though I've not been able to see them, but having scanned the extras and stuff, it looks like there's some good stuff on those discs. Mm. But I have to admit, you know, I love my boutique Blu-rays, but as soon as I heard it was Criterion, I did roll my eyes a little bit because I just thought... You know, I, I just, I'm not saying it's a bad package, but I'd, I'd like to have seen what Second Sight or someone like that would do. Or you, you, I, it just felt like it was more of a, a fit for Eureka Masters of Cinema, to be honest. I, I know where you're coming from. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I just wanted the big box, and the, and yeah. the, I, I yeah. thought for forty quid, yes, you've got three films, you've got extras, but it's not a brilliant package. It's you know, yeah. Criterion yeah. are very stingy in that. And I know this 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 big thing of oh well, it's the film that matters, not the posters. But it's yeah. something like Freaks. I want a fucking poster. I oh want yeah, a yeah. Fucking poster. You know, I want yeah. all that stuff. So yeah, I, I'm. I, yeah, it's nice, but it's not. I, I, I'd preferred it if it was someone else that kind of was more about the physical stuff as well. Yeah, uh, I, I get that. I get that. <coughs> and, and that's the thing. All of the boutique labels we've talked about all do seem to have established their own little identity, you know. And the and yeah, there are ones that we know might be a better fit for this material. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll talk about the ins and outs of this uh, diabolical plot in in a minute. Um, but I, I obviously we can't talk about this without talking about uh, Todd Browning, the director, now because he is, uh, you know, I'll, I think there's a handful of Todd Browning films which are some of the most interesting films ever made. I think, and 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 I, and I say that I don't necessarily think he was the best director in the world but i think he was one of the most fascinating directors in the world yeah and I think I, i'd was, agree with that 
Um, and I think it's odd that obviously, you know, Dracula was a massive success, you know, but he'd kind of done all this, this these silent films with and without Lon Chaney for uh, studios like MGM before he got to Universal to do Dracula. And Dracula, as much as I like a lot of aspects of Dracula, it's probably his, his most vanilla film. It's not, you know, and to say it's, it's the film he's most, I mean, there's some brilliant stuff in it and there's some yeah, absolutely yeah. bonkers stuff in it. You know, we've talked about it before, but, you know, the... Yeah. The, the bees in the coffins and and the the armadillos and all that it, it's mental you know so sure. I, and i love those that first opening 20 minutes of dracula just superb um but yeah in comparison to say this film or comparison to say freaks or devil doll it's you know it it it's you know I, 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 and and well it's it's just not a typical Tom browning film is it no, you know it's it, no. it's it's a great horror movie it's a great example of of that sort of early 30s you know birth of horror explosion stuff but um uh yeah it, it's not typical of its director i wonder how much of that is down to it being an early sound film as well i i, I think Todd never quite found his feet in in, in sound cinema, and uh, and and it's it's those late period silence, including the unknown, where he's absolutely on fire, and and in that team with Cheney, um, you know, you've got one of the great movie partnerships there, right up there with with, you know, De Niro and Scorsese, or or John Ford and John Wayne, you know, it's 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 they're they're that big and that important. Well, it, you know, it, you know, something like The Unknown and, and a few other films he did, but particularly Freaks, it was absolutely in his wheelhouse, wasn't it? You know, this this was yeah, his yeah. background. You know, he was, yeah. you know, he was a kind of carnival grifter, and yeah, know, I mean, he, he, literally, he literally did do that American dream thing of he, he his, his 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 early life history is he ran away and joined the circus. You know, and then when he became a filmmaker, he made films about people who ran away and joined the circus. But he's, you know, he, he's at one of his most famous acts while he was doing the car was the Living Corpse thing, where he, yeah, yeah, basically buried himself for three days. Obviously, there's a system of sort of oxygen pipes or whatever. But yeah, this this idea that he was cooked to town, and you know, it seems odd. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Turn up to your yeah. town. Carnival's in town. What's happening? This guy's buried himself. Great, let's go. Yeah, I know. Uh, and and then and then you know he, he he continues that in the movies. Then with with you know he's he's doing the stuff at the carnival that other people won't do. And then when he becomes a film director, he's making the films that other people won't do. You know, he's he's always on. He's he's like on the extreme of the extreme. You know. And I love one of my favourite sort of theories about Todd Browning. And I know Dave, David J. Skull has talked about this numerous times, and I love it. I, I You know, I love David J. Skull's books. Me too, yeah. Um, I, but th this whole thing, I mean, I've not... I've not been able to get hold of uh, Dark Carnival, which is you know his book specifically about Todd Browning. Yes, which which is super, it costs super a million pounds. Uh, I've yeah. tried to get hold of it, but I have got several other David J. Scarl books. I do like his stuff, but I love this idea that he posits, which I'm not entirely sure I agree with, but I just love the idea of it. This idea that the 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 theory goes that. Browning, well, Browning was a, a big drinker, you know, he, because he, he made a lot of films for MGM initially, and then MGM kind of got sick of his alcoholism, so they, they kind of distanced themselves from him for a while, but there was this, this, this um, reported car crash, and Skull posits that, you know, perhaps in this car crash, he damaged certain parts of his anatomy, let's not go too much into that, but, you know, his, um, is, is rude bits and uh so uh, so you know skull talks about this idea of him being having this castration complex and it gets very freudian you know the idea of the doppelganger being a a substitute for um loss of eye or genital and all this kind of stuff you know according to freud and and yeah you can say yes we're reading too much into it but it it is there it's a constant. Yeah, you know, yeah. There are numerous examples in in Browning's films where you know Dracula is dead from the waist down, 
obviously Johnny Eck, Prince Randian, other images, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cleopatra yeah. at the end of Freaks, you know. Yeah, I mean, literally in 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 the in the original versions of Freaks, the yes. original scripts of Freaks, Hercules, the strong man, is is literally castrated. You know, it it, it actually happens, or is is very very strongly implied, and he's he, you know uh, he there, there were scenes where he was seen as a castrato yes. singer. Which doesn't work that way, you know. You you have to lose your testicles early on to stay a castrato. You can't just lose your testicles and suddenly be yeah. a castrato. But you, that's that's the magic of magic yeah. of the movies for you. But but so so there's a literal example, and that, and that was the nearest that Browning got to actually, you know, putting something like that on screen. But as you say, the the implied versions uh, and the subtler versions of of, of this theory are perhaps the better ones and the more interesting ones to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I mean we'll come back to Lon Chaney in a minute, but there's absolutely... I know it's a, a, a popular sort of saying, and I, and I don't use it because I think it's usually used by people who are fucking dicks but you know this this idea but you can really apply it to this film they don't make them like this anymore they really exactly. fucking don't you know exactly boy meets girl girl kind of falls in love with someone else original boy cuts his own arms off and then tries to pull the other one's arms it, it's you know, starring Lon Chaney and Joan Crawford. It, uh... Yeah, yeah, I know. But ha having said all that, as I, as I say, I, I first encountered the film around 1990 when when it was broadcast on French TV. And uh, um, and um, if you look at the films around that time that were coming out in Hollywood and, and beyond, um, <laughs> you've got Alejandro Jodorowsky's Santa Sangre, which yeah, yeah, is yeah, pretty, yeah. Much, pretty much indebted to the unknown. Um, you've got uh, a couple of years later, you'd got um, uh, Jennifer Lynch's uh, Boxing Helena, yeah. which is all about uh, the character having having their limbs locked off. Um, uh, Tim Burton's Batman. And, and you can see the unknown and you can see Browning yeah. and Chaney yeah. all the way through Tim Burton. But Batman has got a scene where the Joker goes to visit a doctor and forces him to do an operation. And 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 that's all shot in very sort of expressionistic, um, sort of Caligari type way. But it's also a scene that is almost entirely lifted from yeah, the scene yeah. with, with Cheney and the doctor in the unknown. And um, there are there are plenty of other sort of examples. I, I suppose Burton continues that obsession in uh, stuff like Edward Scissorhands, you know, which again is about a character who's 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 got no proper limbs, you know. And and, and um, so yeah, it's it, it's weird how when the film was sort of rediscovered and and was sort of brought to to a, a wider audience in the early 90s that it just seems to have happened to coincide with these these themes becoming popular in in if not mainstream movies films that were on the cusp of the mainstream you know and i suppose you've got david lynch um yeah twin peaks is out at that time so it's it's like what we were saying about 70s tv earlier on there's this weirdness in the air, you know, and a lot of it seems to be Todd Browning type weirdness, almost as though Browning was 60 years too too early. You know, he would have fitted right into that crop of films and TV that were being made in the late 80s and early 90s. And it's like he's a man out of time. Well, one, I mean, this is not a Browning film, but one of the films I... Um sort of point to uh, from a, a sim that that similar era from 1933 was murders in the zoo yes, if, yeah. if you want a brilliant example of a pre-code film oh yeah that absolutely that, goes for it, it yeah, it's yeah. just insane i mean yeah tonally it's all over the place we, we're yeah. not used to hollywood films looking sounding like that those pre-code that was the thing about pre-code you know people talk about the sex and violence and all that yeah but it's also the weird tonal shifts you get. Yes, I mean, yeah. you've got you know you've got this 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 fairly failed kind of uh, 
you know, slapstick shtick, which which is kind of the most in, less interesting parts of the film and the most dated parts of the film. But then you've got, you know, that that sequence at the beginning of of, of a guy having his lips sewn together, yes, yeah. and walking towards the camera. It's brutal. And then the final scenes of you know. Um, getting i mean it's an actual snake as well i mean that's that's the thing you know we're used to seeing kind of rubber snakes or whatever in these kind of films but when you're seeing someone actually being you know crushed by a snake it, it's a, it's an incredible film i think you know if anybody says well what do you mean by pre-code weirdness that <laughs> exactly that would be the film that you'd pick out for sure um yeah still shocking even today i think you know um and, and especially to audiences that think if 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 someone thinks they know what a 1930s film is show them that and they they change their opinion forever you know yeah it yeah it i mean i guess with Uncan uh, sorry the unknown what it's almost like a pre pre code, you know. Obviously, yeah, when we yeah. talk about pre code, we're talking about thirty to thirty four, but this yeah, was kind yeah. of before that, so there were restrictions yeah. in place. But mm. <sighs> and that 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 and that and Browning and Cheney's West of Zanzibar do yeah, the same yeah, thing because yeah. because West of Zanzibar was remade during the pre code era as Congo in a sound version. Uh, Different cast, different director. Cheney, of course, had died by that point. But um, both Congo and West of Zanzibar, which tell the same story, again, are films that are just so out there. They're so different to anything else that was around at the time. And they're, they're very, very different to what came, you know, sort of post postcode from, from sort of 34 onwards. Um, and And... I mean, the the unknown again is right in the middle of that because uh, as 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 we're gonna as we're gonna talk about what a bizarre movie, you know, and uh, you've you've been through elements of the plot already, and uh, but I think this was Browning's territory, you know. I, I I think he, as I said earlier, he he was like on on the on the edge of the edge sort of thing, and uh, I I think he set out certainly in his films with Cheney to strive to just do something that was different to what everyone else was doing because there were horror filmmakers around at the time this this is in an era when people weren't even using the term horror film of course that came later in the early 30s but there was something in the air and there were there were people like benjamin christensen paul laney yeah. were, were, were were regularly making um these weird sort of dramas that weren't called horror films, but we now call them horror films. And so Browning had rivals. There were other people that were doing stuff in the same ballpark. And there is this sense that he must have been seeing the work of these other guys and saying, well, I'm going to push things a little bit further. And I've got I've got Lon with me. He's he's he'll do anything I say. You know, if I tell him to pull his eyeballs out or or whatever, you know, he'll 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 do whatever it takes to sell this movie. And um, what a team they were! Absolutely made for each other, you know. And uh, and I think the unknown is in some ways it's it's it, it's one of the less extreme films for Cheney, but it's 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 um, because he's not having to do the the. Um, the, the sort of heavy physical thing on it, like he did on things like Hunchback and, and Phantom of the Opera. You know, um, the character in The Unknown, um, Alonso the Armless, is 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 not a sort of physical freak in, in the way that the Hunchback of Notre Dame is. He, he's got freaky elements to his personality, but he's, he's got a freaky mind. That's, that's the thing with this character. So for Cheney, it's not as much of a stretch as some of his other stuff. But it's a different role, and you can see why it would have appealed to him. For Browning, I think he's taking things further in the unknown than he ever did in any other film. You know, this is if if Browning's on the edge of the edge, this film is like the edge of Todd Browning. Well, this this is this is kind of I think you know obviously people watch watch films for different reasons, and we have different moods. And I'm not saying you can't have different shots. Of course you can, you know. Hmm. Um, but I I just think I always think. If cinema exists, which it does, and you're going to use that that medium, why make the English patient when you can make this? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> why? Exactly. 
this is what it's for. This is just yeah. the, that. This is look. I'm going to put the most bizarre ideas onto celluloid, and I'm not going to offer you any excuses. It's just there, and and it is just it's 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 mad. It it's brilliant, and it's just probably you know alongside things like the black cat from a few years later and obviously freaks as well it's probably one of the most just oddest bizarre perverse subversive yes. just well yeah. in 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 those terms we've talked a lot about browning and cheney let's look at joan crawford's character joan crawford's the the attractive young heroine of the piece she's a nice character the the audience is rooting for her to to be successful and and have a happy life. She's got this mad thing going on in her head where she's terrified of men's arms and hands. You know, even even the nice heroine, even even the girl in the film, is crazy. Yeah, 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 I, I, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's a you know the whole thing is a madhouse. You know, it, it's not yeah, this. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's there's no sort of handy sane character on 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 you know i think you know the same thing can kind of be said about freaks you know it's yeah, uh, yes. you know even you know the, the 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 clown character frozo you know there, there are hints there in his dialogue that there's something odd about you know there's yeah. something missing you know he, he allude, again he alludes to the fact that you know back before the operation you know so he alludes to the fact that he's castrated again you know as all this kind of stuff so nobody it's almost like this is what i mean by dracula because obviously he was adhering very much to a strict kind of script and it was his first sort of um, talking film so there was all those kind of restrictions but it ends up being <clears throat> dracula at its worst ends up being just a cozy sort of parlor room discussion for too long yeah. you know um but here and with freaks and other it, it is you know he is he has created a Todd Browning. You know we might we might call it the Todd Browning universe now or whatever. Yeah, you know, metaverse. Yeah. Well, or as 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 we've already <laughs> said, the, the the mystic has has carnival scenes, and there's a film called The Show that came out I think four months before The Unknown, which is also sort of carnival based, and that's got a weird fucked up plot as well, and. Um, so yeah, Browning's got form here, and as as we've already said, it came from his own background. You know, a lot of this stuff will have been lifted from things that he'd actually seen and done in the carnival and in the circus. So yeah, the the show uh, isn't on the Criterion set, and it's the sort of missing film from that set. But I gather it is that there, there there was some kind of crowdfunding campaign to get a Blu-ray release for that, and uh, whether that's going to get a wider release next year, I don't know. But anyone who's picked up the criterion set look out for the show as well which is an ideal companion to these other three movies but yeah coming back to freaks and and this ties in a little bit with the unknown as well what i love about freaks is that um the, the sort of obvious thing to do and, and i think some critics read the film like this and i don't think they're right an obvious thing to do would be to simply switch things around so that the, the people in so-called normal bodies are the twisted ones and the freaks in their sort of twisted bodies and, and you know, the, whatever deformities they've got are all are, are all nice. And, and, and you, that, that would be the switch. But the film isn't like that. I think Browning's genius is there are shades of darkness and light in all of the characters. And, um, you know, whether they're the circus performers or whether they're um the you know the the more conventional people I, I don't want to use the word normal people because they're not normal but uh, um but yeah the, the 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 sort of average sized and average shaped people um and the the, the whole gang there are messed up you know um well, I, I guess the only one that that has got sort of you know Un unquestioned redeemable features is, is Madame T Tetralini. You know, we don't know her backstory yeah. or anything, but she, she as far yeah. as we know, she's yeah. all right. You well, know, her, she's her, in, her introduction in the film is lovely because you get those two guys who see the freaks having the picnic and they're making all these insulting remarks about them and she immediately comes on, is seen as like the mother figure yeah. and yeah. 
defends them. And it's the it's the first thing we see in the film is 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 her defense of the this group of people that 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 are working for her. And she's like the den mother of, you know. And it's lovely that you get those two characters who aren't seen again in the film. They're just there simply to come on and insult the um the, the circus performers you know and that's there for a reason that's there so that she can do that and so that browning can immediately give us this this balance now that's something you don't get in the unknown partly because it's a silent film and you'd be having to do it all with sub with uh subtitles and title cards but i think partly because that's not the game with the unknown i i think he he doesn't really want us to have any nice characters in that movie and i think that's the difference between that and freaks is that um as i say even joan crawford in the unknown is is such a twisted character when you really look at what's going on inside her you know um and, and when she changes her mind that's 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 the bizarre moment is when oh i hate men pouring me i hate oh no i like it now i yeah it, i the thing i like about todd browning at his best um it, it like i said it, it i've been reading tons of hb lovecraft at the minute i love lovecraft you know um and what i love about lovecraft is that not in a, a crass way like a very much like you know we have the mcu fashioned thrown together everything's connected i don't mean yeah. but i think you you get the sense with lovecraft everything he writes he's not just chucking you a store one story he is mm giving you a piece of this huge thing that no one will ever really figure out or fathom yeah, and it, it's something it, it's that was whole, in his yeah, yeah. head and i think you get the same sort of thing with like philip k dick everything yeah. is not it's not intrinsically connected but it definitely is connected and you feel yeah. like you're entering his world yeah it's all part of the same universe and and the characters have got the same sort of concerns and the same sort of um you know, little twisted things going on in their heads as well. And I, I think that, that that is exactly the same with Browning. But it's best, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, all of those kind of films, especially those silent films and freaks, they all fit into this strange, odd, you know, world that sits on the periphery yeah. of normality. And it, it, uh, it, and this is why Cheney is such a good fit for him and why they made such a good team, because Cheney had already had that going on in his acting career as well where he'd made this little niche for himself as the weird guy, the guy who does the parts that nobody else will, you know. And then Browning sort of formulating this idea of, 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 of doing these odd films as well. You're seeing it in films like The Mystic and The Show. And then he and Cheney collide and you get this two or three year period where we've got this little knot of films um, and the guys are made for each other. You know, they absolutely are. And and I think you you've got Cheney who's already doing this little bubble of of his own little creative universe. You've got Browning who who's wanting to do that. And then the two come together, and they're a perfect fit or an imperfect fit, if you prefer. Yeah, I mean, Ch Cheney couldn't have existed in any other era. The weird thing about Cheney as well is that in 1928 and 29, he was the top male box office star yeah. in Hollywood. The way he was the Tom Cruise of the late yeah. 1920s, and it was for the very films that we're talking about yeah. today. They were massive with audiences. He was bigger than the. I mean, the other big stars around at the time were Tom Mix, the big cowboy star who had been the box office champion, I think, the year before, 1926 or 27, and Rudolph Valentino, who seemed to have fallen out of favour. And um, so you'd got Valentino, the matinee idol, you'd got Tom Mix, you'd, you'd got the great comedians, of course, of, of the day, Keaton, Laurel and Hardy, Chaplin. Cheney, for two years, in 1928 and 29, right in the wake of, of these films and right at the period where he was working with Browning, was the biggest male box office star in the world. What was happening with audiences to, 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 to make that the case? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, like, I guess with music as well, I mean, one of the things I, I 
I don't watch live TV and I, I don't watch BBC Four anymore, but I used to watch BBC Four back in the day. And what I kind of got bored with was their constant, and it's like the six musification and the BBC Four narratives on music they've got their own narratives and they're not going to shift from that you know the 90s was just oasis and blur that's it you know and it's like fucking there's so much more happening in that decade bad shit and good shit you know and it, and i don't like this kind of you know whitewashing or, or re re you know reimagining history to suit your own narrative purposes but i think we do that with hollywood and i think you know you, you're absolutely right and if you look back what's nice when when i'm doing research and stuff i mean you've got the internet archive now and you've got tons of issues of variety magazine from back you know from sort of nine the 1910s 20s and if you look at if you can be bothered if you can spend the time sifting through that because i was looking when i was talking about the unknown at the broadway a few weeks back i was sifting through you know to find reviews of the unknown and you know we, we've been led to believe certain narratives about hollywood particularly in the 20s and 30s of who was most famous and all this kind of stuff and yeah you're right you know it's not that that narrative is not always correct if, yeah, you look, yeah. if you look at those magazines they reflect a different way that people were feeling about films and and the characters that they were kind you know a lot of films that we have absolutely forgotten now would have been huge at the time you know oh yeah yeah i mean we know how many silent films have been lost and and there's that whole history there that we're never going to know about you know but yeah cheney was the number one box office star the only person above him in the listings was uh, clara bow and, and most people have forgotten who Clara Bow is now, you know. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Outside yeah. of kind of cool, nerdy film people, you know, yeah. you say Clara Bow is, don't know. Yeah, but, uh, but, but, but Cheney's still a, an icon. You know, people know what the Phantom of the Opera is. They know what the Hunchback is. They even know his character from London After Midnight, even though that's a lost film. You know, these are images that, that still resonate today. Now, talking about how Browning and Cheney sort of changed public perception in a way and, and brought this weirdness into the limelight. We've actually seen an example of that in our lifetimes. And again, it's, it's coming back to a name we've already mentioned. Don't you agree with me that Tim Burton did that around 1990, 91, 92? I think the specific film that did it was Batman Returns. I think... You you look at Batman Returns and it's such a Todd Browning movie that they have this circus imagery... And those that wave of, of early Tim Burton films, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, I think changed a mass audience perception and led us to where we are now with things like Game of Thrones and Walking Dead having become big. I think that all stems from those Tim Burton films and audiences going along to see the, the first Batman loving it look but all loving the gothic atmosphere of it which i think not many people expected um and and then sticking with burton sticking with that vision and realizing that yeah this dark stuff's actually good isn't it and that was getting through we me and you and the, the people we know already knew all that by by 1990 but there were a hell of a lot of people who didn't and i think they they were sort of educated by tim burton but of course burton had learned all that from people like lon cheney and todd browning and and, and james james whale there's a lot a lot of james whale in, in burton, indeed burton, indeed you know. Yeah, I think, and, yeah, I, I think you're right, and and um, I think you know it's easy to forget just how interesting a filmmaker he was for a while. Mm. Um, I, I think it's just a shame it kind of became he, he kind of became a parody of himself. I think you know Burton's career almost parallels Browning. There are so many sort of similarities, and even the the even if you look at the rise. The, the the stardom and then the fall and the decline you know they're they're, they're almost identical to, to what happened in browning's film career i think the only thing burton didn't do that todd browning did was run away to the circus and i bet he wishes he had done you know but uh, um 
As far as I know, he didn't, he didn't get pissed, pissed have a car crash and lose his testicles, as far as we know. <laughs> well, he, he could be keeping that quiet. That, that might explain a lot if it had happened. But, uh, but yeah, I, they've even got the same initials, for God's sake. You know, it's, uh, yeah, so there are parallels there. And I, and I think what Tim Burton's film career does is, is it, it shows a modern audience what the impact of Todd Browning was in the 20s. When you look at these film charts and you see, oh, yeah, Lon Chaney wasn't just a popular star. He was the biggest star in the world. He was the biggest male star in the world for making these films, you know. And I think for audiences to understand that, look at that that quartet of Tim Burton films between sort of 1987 and, and, and 92 and see the impact that they had on, on cinema Take that back 60 or 70 years, and that's where Browning and Cheney sit. I think, you know, I kind of mentioned this, um, I think it was on the last one or maybe maybe the one before that. Um, I think that that, you know, e even close to home, I think there, there was a, a resurgence, maybe it was just my, from my filtered view, but of, of the kind of weird and uncanny stuff around that time, you know, so obviously it was happening with Burton and you're seeing that on the screen, this gothic weirdness presented to us, you know, in the form of a superhero movie. Um, but, I, you know, because I, I, I was talking about the other day, um, the, the Channel 4, you know, people tend to look at Channel 4, the early Channel 4, oh, it's subversive and all this. I don't think it hit its stride till till much later. I think it's more sort of the end of the 80s, mid to late 80s, early yeah. 90s, when you're getting all those repeats of the Twilight Zone and or, or, or new stuff like uh, Secret Cabaret and all this kind of stuff, or 40 and TV, which came later on. If there was kind of this this weirdness at the end of the 80s and early, early 90s. And yeah, I think and BB, BBC2 were doing that at the time, possibly in competition with Channel 4, you know, and it's weird how you got this stuff where you've got a lot of retro programming, like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits were coming back and being shown at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, but they'd they would both channels would mix those in with new programming that had a similar sensibility i remember because yeah the bbc2 had mystery train didn't they with, yeah, with yeah. brian which which people have yeah. kind of forgotten about now yeah, it's really yeah. difficult to get any sort of i because i remember it very clearly and i loved it because it was just so fucking odd and i remember they were sh they showed like some of the early david lynch animations and short yeah, films yeah. and they used to show uh, Duckman around the same time as well, which was a really bizarre animated series. Um, yeah, it, it was brilliant. Yeah. I, I, I suppose this was the early days of late night and 24-hour TV, wasn't it? And I, I think in those early days, it was like, what, what are we if, if, if we're being if, if the controller is telling us to put things on at two o'clock in the morning, what are we going to show? You know, and uh, uh, it was great. ITV, I remember, was showing like old 1950s and 60s British B movies and a lot of very weird ones, you know. But BBC Two and Channel Four both had these 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 sort of programming ideas where they would mix and match vintage content of a strange variety with new material of a strange variety, you know. And yeah, it, 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 it may have simply been that, that um, right, we've decided that we're going to show TV into the small hours, but what the fuck do we put on? <laughs> well, I, I remember, yeah, I mean, just, just very quickly, uh, I mean, I, I remember seeing Night of the Living Dead and Carnival of Souls You'd think, oh, well, BBC Two, Channel 4. No, it was on ITV because yeah, ITV yeah. was buying yeah. up. You yeah. know, Night of the Living Dead went through a long time where there was anybody could kind of release it and show it or whatever. Yeah. And things like Carnival of Souls because there weren't these kind of deals being cut out. But, yeah, so first time I ever saw Carnival of Souls was, was on ITV late at mm. about half past one in the morning or something. And yeah, that's when you yeah. should see Carnival of Souls for the first time when you're kind of falling asleep and watching it. Thinking, yeah, what the fuck yeah. Is this? Imagine, <laughs> imagine coming home from the pub and switching on the TV and seeing the unknown at two o'clock in the morning. You know, you'd freak out. Yeah. Um, anyway, Daryl, have you got a quick plug for us? Anything coming up through We Belong Dead? Yes, uh, we've got the new issue of We Belong Dead is in preparation. The current one, as I say, is a black exploitation special, which is out now. Um, issue 39 is in preparation. We've got loads of stuff planned for next year. Um, 
we've got the Euro horror book coming out from We Belong Dead 2, and um, uh, that that should be out any time. It's all it's all finished, all prepared. We're just waiting to sort out a printer on it. And um, as I say, I'm I'm doing stuff at Quad as well. We've got The Exorcist coming up as as our Fry Club for December, and we've got uh, um, more shows planned for later in the year um uh, in in 2024 um i've also uh, i've I'm, i've got an essay uh in the booklet of the release of mausoleum which is coming out my pals at uh, treasured films imminently so look out for that and i'll be working with those guys on some of their new releases too and um also um, in February next year, I'm all, I've already got stuff in the diary for next year. Um, we've got the uh, UK Ghost Story Festival back in Derby, which is an annual event in Derby early in the year. Uh, my friend Alex Davis runs that. And I'll be doing a lecture as part of that weekend in February. I'm, I'm doing a talk called Inner Ghosts, which is going to be all about imaginary friends on film. And um, I'm also doing that same weekend, I'm doing my horror walk of Derby, which is a little walking tour around the city centre where I point out little sites of interest involving figures like Bella Lugosi and Todd Slaughter, amongst others. So uh, if, if, if you didn't realise that Derby city centre was, was a sort of haven for horror, um, come on my walk in in february so uh, yeah so plenty going on here and um hopefully more to come later in the year so uh, um yeah the, the the as as you know andrew the horror the horror conveyor belt never stops does it no um excellent so yeah um so it just remains for me to say yeah uh make sure you check us out on facebook make sure you Listen to us wherever you listen to your podcast, and and if you can, if you get a minute, just give us a review. Give us a good review because it really. I know people say this, but it, it genuinely helps to to get the podcast out there to other people. So please do that. But it just remains for me to say thank you to my guest, Daryl Buxton. Cheers, Daryl. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Always great to talk about silent horror. So remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. You look like you're dying for a nice cup of tea for terror. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.